G'day, I'm Nick Bowditch. Welcome to the Ordinary Stories podcast. We believe the power of story comes from the unexpected, and great storytelling often comes from unexpected storytellers. So on this podcast, we've interviewed a diverse collection of normal, everyday people, all of whom have one thing in common, a story that is anything but ordinary. My guest today is Sue. Sue had a pretty normal everyday life until one tragic and very sad event changed her life forever. A few years ago, Sue became unwittingly entangled in a life of betrayal, cruelty, and ultimately murder. But as dramatic as all of that sounds, the really amazing part of this story is how the power of forgiveness has put Sue on a very different path today. My father loved his parents and they loved him and and there was love in that home. It just wasn't shown in an affectionate way. Look, on and off, like most marriages, they had their problems and some of them they resolved and some of them they didn't. Really wasn't until much later in their marriage that things got quite difficult and his drinking increased and I went to the doctor and asked what had happened and they refused to give me any information until I'd been into the room to see my father. She said to me, it probably wasn't the right thing to do, but how do you feel now? Sue, tell me, okay, we're going to talk a lot about your story and certainly about the, the big parts of it that we want to get to today, but a lot of your story revolves around your dad. Yes. And I note in your book that there's a sentence about him um, where you say he was an above average student with an avoidance to homework and a fondness to be the best talker in school. <laughs> I can't help but feel that apple hasn't fallen very very far from the tree. Tell me how much you are like your dad. Oh, one of the hard-hitting questions straight up. Um, A lot like my dad. Yeah. Yeah. We had a lot of – we share a lot of similar traits, so. What's the best part of him that's in you? Uh, Probably my sense of humour and my resilience. I actually get that from both of my parents, but, yeah. We'll talk about your mum a bit because, uh, you know, full disclosure, I do know you and your mum <laughs> and, and your mum's a sweetheart who I, who I want to treat carefully in this story because a lot of the stuff about your dad isn't all that great um, compared to how he, how he dealt with your mum. Tell me, your dad was born in Balmain. Yes, a Balmain boy. So in, in a city, Sydney, what was, what was in a city, Sydney like then? Back then, it was a hard working class area and the, the Henrys didn't do it easily. Um, my great, uh, sorry, my grandfather was a merchant seaman. So he was away for a lot of my father's upbringing. So my father took on that responsibility of the man of the house um, role. He had has two brothers and um, it was just them and their mum. And my grandmother uh, sewed for people to help supplement their income while he was away at sea. And yeah, they did it pretty tough. 
How long was he away for at a stretch? Sometimes it could be two, three years. Wow. So, yeah, they were long periods. And that's a lot for a, a young mum with three young boys. And, you know, my I've seen photos of my dad and his brothers when, you know, my dad would have been 11 and the, and the brothers are like two years apart, younger. So, yeah, quite tough, I think, back then for my grandmother. She must have been fairly resilient herself in that case. Yeah, she was a, a pretty tough character. Um, when I say tough character, she was stern, as most women in that era were, in the sense that she was a good Catholic woman. You know, the boys were always immaculately dressed. They went to um, the Catholic boys' school. Um, you know, she was well regarded in the community, um, you know, for the work she did at the church and, and helped out the neighbours. And it was quite a close-knit community in those days. It's a pretty familiar inner city kind of story, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. How did your dad speak about his dad? Uh, that's a interesting question. He, he never spoke a great deal about him um, in the sense, in the same way that we do speak about our parents today and the relationships that kids seem to have with their parents today. You know, it was a very cold relationship, if anything. Like they got on, and but my grandfather ran the house like a ship. So the boys were expected to toe the line, have their shoes had to be really shiny, their socks had to be the right height, um, all that kind of stuff. So it was a bit of a military-style upbringing with not – there was love in the home, but there wasn't a lot of loving um, – what would you call it? Demonstrative behaviour. So there was no hugging and no greeting kisses and things like that. It was very, you know, to the fact and – do you think you can have love without affection? Yes, I do. Yeah. Do you think that's how it was? Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's how it was. And and look, my father loved his parents and they loved him and, and there was love in that at home. It just wasn't shown in an affectionate way. Yeah. I, I feel like each generation's, I'm going to say better, I don't even I know think, if that's true, but yeah. different in that way that- I think we're I, evolving I, as a community yeah. in those regards. But that wasn't the case in all families because my mother's family was completely the opposite. So, so, so Delma yeah. is, is Sue's mum and she's from a big family, right? <laughs> yes. So tell me, uh, what was, like she wasn't in a city, Sydney. No, she was a country girl. So where is she from? A little town uh, in southern New South Wales called Tokemal. And uh, it's a little town on the Murray River. It's quite tell, a tell pretty me about, place. Tell me about Tokemal. I, I know Tokemal kind of. Not as intimately as you. <laughs> what what is it? It's a it's just a lovely little town. In fact, during the war, there was a really large um, airbase in Tokemoor. So a lot of the American um, pilots came out there and they trained with the Australians, and it was quite a big um, centre for uh, the army. No, sorry, the air force at the time. And um, post war years, my grandfather was in charge of the dismantling of the warplanes that were no longer in use. So. Oh. My mum and her brothers and sisters have fond memories of playing at the airfield and um, lots of stories about when the uh, soldiers were there and some of the shenanigans that went on in the town. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> um, where does Delma fit in the, in the order? Um, mum's the third out of eight. Wow. Yeah. They weren't mucking around. No. Says, says the one of seven. Yes. <laughs> You said it was a very different house, a very affectionate. Yeah, there's house. a lot of laughter um, in the McCormacks and a lot of um, 
love and care. But again, very involved in the community, um, often known and still are to take in a stray. So if you've got nowhere to go for a meal, this was the house that you went to. If somebody was sick and needed help, the McCormacks turn up on the doorstep with the food and the help and, and things like that. How did your mum and dad meet? Um, my mum was a telephonist in the town in the old days where they had the plug-in uh, party lines and um, my dad was with the PMG and he'd been sent to Tokemall on a promotion and uh, they met pretty much his first day in town and uh, he asked her out a day later. <laughs> she wouldn't go out with him though. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's the generation really, isn't it? Yeah. They weren't mucking around. Um, what sort of relationship did they have before they were married, say? So. Um, yeah, I think, um, you know, a normal courting type relationship from those days. They'd go to the movies and dances and socialise with their friends. And and my father actually, um, my grandparents ran a boarding house and my father boarded there as well. So he was then included as part of the family and the family meals and, you know. She didn't have much choice then. She didn't couldn't get away from it. <laughs> no, no. He pursued her for, for a good two weeks before she agreed to go out with him and then um, he asked her to marry him on that date. But she on made the first him, date? Yeah. She made him wait five years before they did. <laughs> I like Delma. <laughs> um, in those days, alcohol, in these days, geez, um, alcohol is, is a part of life and part of their life. Yep. Was it a good part of their life? Um, it was initially and... My dad developed a problem with alcohol later in his life, so it was more when they moved actually from Tokemore and away from that family support that, that some cracks started to show and he started to experience some what we call periods of turmoil. Due to, uh, with alcohol? With alcohol, some stresses, he wasn't quite sure what to do with his stress and, you know, it was easier to drown his sorrows and and problems than to face them and deal with them. And and look, I can say that now. I didn't know that at the time. That's that's a reflection, something that I've learned over the years. So over the recent years, really, you've you've learned a lot about your dad and we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> I, that is the, the crux of the story, I guess. But to, how much – was your mum a drinker in the time? No. She, mum, she would have the occasional wine with family at a, at a function or a wedding or – or something like that, but she wasn't a. She never drank at home or anything like that. And my dad wasn't. Um, you know, he wasn't a bad man in those days. You know, he he would have a couple of drinks sometimes after work, as most people did on their way home from work in those days. But he always, you know, came home and there was always food on our table, and we always did things together as a family. You know. How, how long had they been married when their little bundle of joy? Arrived? Um, four years before I came along. Right. So I think they um, they had a little bit of trouble conceiving at first and then along came. There she was. <laughs> What's, what, what sort of baby does Delma tell you you were? Oh, she says I, I can imagine she'd say, just to interrupt you because I know, <laughs> oh, she was no trouble. She yeah, that's exactly what she baby. says. <laughs> that's exactly. Apparently I was quite a bit of trouble coming and uh, – she was in hospital for quite some time before I was born. And being a country town, she tells a great story of they would change the nursery pink one day and it'd be blue a couple of days later and then I'd turn it back to pink to wait to see the arrival of the baby. 
And it was a pretty big news, I think, when <laughs> when it finally happened. What do you remember from being really little? Uh, I can remember spending a lot of time with my grandmother and my mum's mum, and I can remember a lot of laughter around the table at their house with all of the family. I can also remember lots of outings with my uncles. They used to take me everywhere when I was a kid. In fact, I think that's where I started my love of AFL. They used to take me to the local VFL matches and um, mum mum thinks it was to just impress the girlfriends that <laughs> they could look after a baby. <laughs> it's nice to have a prop yes. now and then. <laughs> um, and, and you went to school in the bush? No. In fact, we moved up to the Central Coast when I was about three, so I did all my schooling here on the coast. So Sue and I are both from this region. We were recording this today, which for the people outside of Australia is about an hour and a half north of Sydney, a little, what used to be, little coastal fishing and surfing towns. And now largely it's suburbia of Sydney in in a lot of ways. When did it start to fall apart for your dad? When did, when did you, you know, you say he was, he, he was a bit of a drinker and he became a bit of a lad. Yeah. Um, Kidding your mum or you or him? Uh, Has he, have you pinpointed a moment where it started to not be so great with them? Look, on and off, like most marriages, they had their problems and some of them they resolved and some of them they didn't. And it really wasn't until much later in their marriage that things got quite difficult and his drinking increased and um, he left with another woman. And that, that was, they were, they'd been married 42 years when that happened. But spattered throughout their marriage, there'd been infidelity in the past. And my mum is an incredible, incredibly strong woman. And despite whatever he'd done in the past, she stood by him and helped him. And she always believed that she could help him get back on track when he was in his difficult times, if you like. When, when you sit and think about that, do you think she should have? Look, when I was sort of in my mid-teens to early 20s, I couldn't understand it. I was like, just leave, you know, the old prick. It's okay. We've had swearing in every yeah, episode I don't so really far. Want, so. I don't really want to swear. So, <laughs> you know, just leave the old bugger. And um, she wouldn't. She, she would just make it work because there were happy times. And I guess in her mind, those happy times compensated for the times that weren't so great. And, and we're talking about a different era. You know, if I look at my friends now, if that was going on in one of their marriages, they probably would pack up and leave. Mm. Um, but, you know, there was a lot of instilled Catholic beliefs. You get married, you're married for life. You, you keep your problems in the home, you don't speak about them outside, you know, you just get on with it and put a smile on your face, which is a great and a not-so-great thing. And, and I have to say it's one of the things that has re- really helped me later in life. So the bits that we're going to talk about, that whole putting a smile on your face, really helped, hmm. interestingly enough. Yeah, it is. I, and I, I think you're right that we've gone through this period of women especially just putting up with a lot of crap. Yeah, and look, if you were t- if mum were here today, she'd probably go, what are you talking about? Mm. You know, it's almost a bit of a selective memory, if you like. Wow. Did, did anyone 
outside of them and, and you later mm. um, know what was happening, know what their no. relationship was like? No. Not that I'm aware of. It's a lot for your mum to carry her. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, I really think some of that has now affected her in these last four and five years in, in different ways, which we'll get onto, I'm sure. But um, Yeah. So you mentioned another woman who, yeah. who for the purposes of this um, episode, we're going to call her Mary. So M- Mary and, and your dad eventually did become an item and, and your yes. dad left the home and yep. left your mum and you yep. um, to be with her. How long, how long was it going on before that, do you think? Um, I think we worked it out about 12 months. It, it was on and off. She was not a great person. No. No. For him or for herself? Both. Yeah. Both. Uh, I think she'd had a pretty rough upbringing from what I've heard around town. And, you know, it's hearsay, so I don't have any facts. Only some personal observations as well. She lived a pretty hard drinking pub lifestyle and that's where they met. And um, They met at the pub? Yeah. Did you ever romantic. meet her? Sorry? <laughs> yeah, very romantic. <laughs> at Ocean Beach Hotel. Yeah. Woi woi. Woi woi Hotel, <laughs> sorry. Um, did you ever meet Mary? Yes, on several occasions. In what capacity? Uh, <laughs> some not so pleasant. Um, I knew who Mary was because Mary had a reputation in town. And I actually came, I didn't see her during the time that my parents separated. I was living in Sydney and uh, I'd come up to help my mum with some stuff and we went to one of the local clubs and she was there and we caught the (laughs) courtesy bus home and my father was the driver on the courtesy bus and she was a passenger on the courtesy bus. How did that go? Not great, I'm ashamed to say. So before you tell me, <laughs> you were catching the courtesy home bus at courtesy bus home because you'd had a couple? Yes. Yeah. It's yeah. not a great, probably precursor to what's happened next. No. What happened? Um, so just to give you a little bit of context, Mary had been making phone calls to my mum late at night and saying some very unpleasant things. And when I say late at night, midnight, 1am, and, and ridiculous things about my dad and their marriage and unnecessary, which I think were alcohol fueled, mm. And it was upsetting mum and mum and I had been out for dinner, had a couple of drinks, got on the courtesy bus. There she was. Yeah. And my anger had been swirling around and that's, there's one thing I've learnt through all of this is that as humans we sometimes don't know what to do with our anger and the only thing we tend to do with it is lash out at others. Too right. And back then I didn't have a great way of dealing with it. I played sport, I did all sorts of things, but I wasn't yet ready to face my issues or angers. I didn't even know that it was possible to address the anger issues without being angry. 
Um, so I confronted her in, in no ladylike terms, told her that she was not to call my mother ever again, otherwise I would deal with her. Is only a girl from Woi Woi Ken. Correct. <laughs> um, sounds totally reasonable to me. Not my proudest moment. What What was your dad doing during this? Um, advising me that I should stop and get off the courtesy bus because it wasn't pleasant for anybody to hear. It made me worse. I then proceeded to tell the entire bus his transgressions and her role in it, which for a town like Wooi was quite entertaining because I had a lot of people gasping and ooing and ahhing at it. By this stage, my mother was off the bus, embarrassed, pointing at me and telling me to get off, which when I saw her face, I realised I'd gone too far. So I got off the bus. Do you mean then you told the world about her life? Yeah. As well? Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that wasn't fair on her. It wasn't fair on my dad. And it wasn't fair on Mary, as horrible and all person that she was. It was inappropriate behaviour on my part. And, you know, I, I see a lot of that happens um, in our communities. We're, we're seeing a lot of it in the news. Especially from anger. I, yeah. I think it's it's the thing that we are taught to deal with the least. Yeah. In fact, Just I d- bottle it up, bottle it yeah. up. Yeah. In fact, I did a um, – this is a little off topic. I hope this is okay. I, I did a talk at a women's prison last year and – one of the issues I was talking about was dealing with your anger and there were a number of women in the audience that were in there because of their anger. They'd lashed out, hurt, murdered, damaged other people and property. And I said to them, I told them that story about the the bus and I said, by the grace of good decision-making, I'm not in here. And it was that moment that I looked at my mum and I had enough knowledge to say to, and understanding to say to myself, you've stepped over the line, it's now time to rein it in, whereas a lot of people don't get to that. And I think for a number of reasons. One, they don't have enough understanding of the issues. They don't have enough understanding of themselves and they don't have enough love and respect for themselves to stop at that point. And I'm grateful she was there Yeah, your mum. I'm, I'm grateful too. You know, it's 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 funny that the only thing that defused your anger at that moment was the empathy you had for your mum. Yeah. So it was like empathy and kindness had had switched it off. Yeah. Oh, I turned it down at yeah. least for you enough for yeah. you, enough for you to get out of that situation. Yeah. When when you're so angry, are you are you angry at that point at Mary? Or you're angry at your dad, or you're angry at your mum, maybe, or you, or just the world. Like who? Oh, who's oh. who's the who's the epicenter of your anger yeah. at that point? I, I was cranky at everybody at that point. I was working um, in a job at the time. In fact, a couple of things that happened in my own life. You know, relationships that weren't going so great. I was running my business and I was working a job. Um, on a contract that was quite high in stress. My parents were going through the breakup. I was trying to stay neutral. So I was cranky at both of them for involving me. I was cranky at 
Mary for her role in it, you know, and I was cranky with myself for feeling cranky, (laughs) you know. So it was, there was a lot going on inside. I didn't talk to anybody about it and tell any of my friends and, and, you know, my mum is from a large family so I had every day seven, eight, nine phone calls coming in wanting to know what was happening, what they could do to help, how what was happening, you know, all of those type of things and all the pressures of my business and the contract that I was on just got to a point that I didn't know how to deal with it. And I can look back now and say I replicated my father's behaviour. I had a couple of drinks to block it out and then when it couldn't, the alcohol couldn't contain that, the anger bubbled up to a point that it just spurted out. I'm, I'm grateful, though, that I did have that moment of sadness to look at my mum and go, you know better than this. When, when you get off the bus and it's just, and the bus pulls away, presumably, and there's just you and your mum, <laughs> what happened then? <laughs> um, I was pretty ashamed, actually. And the last thing I wanted was to disappoint my mum because she had brought me up better than that. And I probably never, I haven't really thought about this until now, but I'll probably never forget, she said to me, it probably wasn't the right thing to do, but how do you feel now? I said, I actually feel a little bit better, apart from all the shame that I have now for how I've behaved. Now that it's out, it actually feels a bit better. She said, well, maybe that wasn't the best avenue to let it out. So even in the face of everything that your dad has done to her and, you know, she's done a lot when they were together and then he's up and left with this bird and had this blow up and she's still in his corner. I mean, she's in your corner too, right? But, yeah, yeah. But she's saying to you, you know, maybe you could have. I think it was more, we don't do things like that in public. You know, you've not only embarrassed yourself, but myself, your father, Mary, you know. It's a, it's a different generation, eh? Yeah, completely. <laughs> in fact, I was walking through the shopping centre, so I heard somebody shouting. Oh, it's going on over there. Goodness and, me, you, you know? would never do that in the shop. <laughs> Had a little geezer over to see what was going on. Somebody that's angry. Yeah, there's a lot of that. So did, was that how you fell out with your dad? Um, that was part of it, yes. So, so you, you were estranged from your dad for a long time. Yeah, so, so not long after that incident, um, I was back in Sydney um, and I got a phone call from my dad and he wanted some money, which I wasn't willing to give him. I was happy to pay his bills, um, but I wasn't going to give him cash because he and Lynn, he and Mary, were on a, um, they're like a train wreck together, and more money would have fed and fueled that lifestyle. So, and uh, she got on the phone, had her say as well, which didn't, not much for my anger at that stage. So she's having a go at you for not giving them money? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you say no? So I say no. Um, he gave me a 
mouthful of um, not-so-nice comments. And um, he finished the conversation by saying, I'm not really your father. You should ask your mother who is. Whoa. Which um, I laughed at. And the reason that I laughed is that <laughs> if you saw my dad and I next to one another, it, there's no mistaking, he's my dad. Um, it was just a statement that he had said, which I later, like years down the track, found out it was something that Mary had said to him. She's probably not even your daughter. Planting seeds in my dad's mind. To, which, which really changed, the, that statement really changed our relationship at that point. And after the laughing, um, which I think was part protecting myself from being hurt by it, um, I made the decision that I was going to cut all contact with him because I didn't want to put myself in those situations that would just fuel my anger. So I had to remove myself from the relationship. For a long time? Five years. Five years. During that five years, did your mum have contact with him? In the last two years, she did, um, and that's because Mary passed away. Um, and uh, not long after she passed away, um, he rang to talk to mum and said, said that he wanted to repair our relationship. Um, Between your mum and him or you and him? But with both of us. Um, my mum's a little bit quicker to forgiveness than what I have been, and... Uh, they, they would have regular conversations on the phone. When I say regular, every two months or so, they'd have a chat on the phone and he would ask to speak with me and I would refuse that. When when he says to Delma, is Sue there, can I speak to her? And presumably Delma says, oh, hang on, ask you, and then comes back and says, no, she doesn't want to speak to you. Would he... I mean, in the old days, I presume he would have lashed out at that point. Do mm. you feel like he was starting to be a little bit more remorseful? Yes. Um, and I guess for that first 18 months of that two years, I didn't know that, or, or more maybe. Um, and, you know, he would say to mum, can you just get her to call me? Can you just get her to call me? And I wouldn't. How did that make your mum feel? Um, to be honest, I don't know. Um, I think she always wanted us to build that bridge because I think she actually felt better that that bridge had been built between her and him. Um, yeah. Well, so of course she did, right? Yeah. I mean, they, I mean, they were married. For, they were married for forty-two years. Yeah. You don't throw a friendship away after forty-two years, whether you're in a marriage or not. And he's my father. She she wants that, you know, relationship to be repaired, I'm guessing. I mean, you know, for the 42 years and whatever, the, you're the two most important people in her life. You're the two strongest yeah. relationships, regardless of what's going on. Yeah. Of course she wants that to be yeah. reunited. One day, five years after you become estranged with him, you do reunite with your dad. Yeah. How did that come about? So it was. This was interesting. So the two or three times before that, he had rung and said that he'd lost his driver's license, and that his car was just sitting at home in the driveway. 
and he knew that I didn't have a car. I don't know how he knew that through the woi woi grapevine, I'm sure, um, and offered the car and said to mum, I don't want his car. Being very stubborn and... I'm sure it was, I don't want his effing car, but yeah. <laughs> you know, I won't For swear. the sake of the edit. Well. <laughs> um, anyway, on the third or fourth reach out that he had, his, you know, the offer of the car, again, I was like, it's, I don't want the car. And I was on the phone with a friend who's um, quite heavily involved in the church. And she said to me, how would you feel in six months if something happened to him and you had turned down his help and he's reaching out? And I was like, I'll be all right. I've been all right for the last five years. And I was very adamant about it. I hung up the phone, went on with my work and late in the night, that conversation played over and over in my mind. And the next day I said to my mum, I'm going to call him today and I'm taking that car and I'm going to have a chat to him. And if it all falls apart, the car's going back. And how amazingly prophetic that conversation <sighs> will turn out to be, which we're, which yeah. we're about to find out. Now, I'm going to quote from your book about a conversation you had with your dad upon reuniting, which is hugely pivotal in this. Quoting from Sue's book, he told me two specific things that would define the next two years of my life and set the path for my future. One, that he had befriended two young people that were down on their luck and he had given a helping hand to only be taken advantage of. The story was a lot more complex, but that's the essence. And number two that he knew without a doubt that a close friend of Mary's that had been what he thought a friend and had, quote, helped him after she died, had been stealing money out of his wallet for some time and he had caught her in the act. A little bit later now and you find out that that conversation was very prophetic and something has happened to your dad. Yeah. Yeah. What happened? So on um, the I'm just gonna think what day it was the 14th of January, I'd been um, playing some sport um, with some friends, and I got home quite late at night, and my mum was waiting up for me, and my uncle and aunt, who were visiting us at the time, they were all sort of sitting there with funny looks on their faces, and my mum said. We got a phone call from your uncle Richard. Um, your father's been bashed up and taken to Westmead Hospital. Um, and at that point, that was really all I knew. Uh, so I rang Uncle Richard and managed to discover that yes, he had in fact been assaulted in his home. Um, at that stage, the details were very sketchy. I managed to get onto the police and the doctor. Uh, the doctor told me that he may not make it through the night. His injuries were so serious and that um, I should do what I could to get down there the next morning and they would, you know, continue to treat him through the night. And um, he'd been in hospital uh, for 24 hours already and um, uh, 
got onto the police and they had confirmed my uncle's story that he had, in fact, been insulted in his home. Um, they believed at the time it may have been a robbery and um, that was really all they knew at that stage. So at that time, your dad was living in Gloucester, which, yeah. again, is three and a half hours north of Sydney, yeah. of where Westmead Hospital is in, is in the western suburbs of Sydney. So he's he's been taken through the through the night at a, at a rush, I yeah. presume, from Gloucester, three and a half hours to one of the biggest teaching hospitals in Sydney. You get the call from the doctor who says, look, he might not make it through the night. Mm. At that point, are you thinking from a lens of anger towards him still or, or does that all does all of that vanish when you think someone could die who you have had this up and down up and down but who you love what what's the over, what's what wins kindness and love in that moment there was nothing more important to me than two things letting him know that he was loved and I was demanding that the doctor organise a priest to go and give him his last rites because I believed that he should have forgiveness before he passed and he should have that opportunity, even though he would not have been able to consciously know, but I would have rested better knowing that he would have had that access. So that happens? Yeah, so that happens. The the um, priest comes through the night and blesses him and does whatever they do. They didn't actually read the last rites because he was still hanging on and that's apparently something they don't do unless you're about to go. Yep. Um, so I get to the hospital the next morning um, after, in fact, I'd spent a lengthy amount of time on the phone with the police. By this stage I'm now in touch with the detective in charge of the case and um, we ran through, I ran through all the family history. He asked me lots of questions about my relationship with my father, my father's relationship with Mary, Mary's friend, Jenny, um, you know, and, you know, he was trying to piece together what my Uncle Richard had told him, a bit of family history, and um, they were still looking for evidence of what had actually occurred because there were, there were conflicting stories that he'd been found in the home from a fall by one of the perpetrators, um, as opposed to he'd also been assaulted by one of them. And somebody who ends up being charged um, as an accessory to the to the fact of your dad being bashed up tells the police at the time that he's had a fall. Yes. And that she found him yes. like that. Yeah. But the injuries your dad sustained don't quite add, add up to a fall unless it's a fall from... A great height. Yeah. Yeah. He had some fairly extensive injuries. When you drive to Westmead, which is an hour and a half from where we are, God knows what's going through your head all that time. You've had 12 hours more yeah. to think and worry and stress about it. You're with your mum. Yep. And you walk into the intensive care at Westmead, again, one of the biggest teaching hospitals in Sydney. What... What scene do you walk into? Uh, well, having never had to go to intensive care to see anybody in that condition, I was not prepared for what I was about to see. Um, you don't just walk into the ward. You have to be let in through a, a door, um, which we were. We went through. Um, in fact, we'd met with one of my uncles outside. The three of us went through. And 
um, because it is a teaching hospital. There's a lot of stuff. When I say stuff, there's a lot of doctors sort of meandering around with stethoscopes, notepads. And I went to the doctor and asked what had happened and they refused to give me any information until I'd been into the room to see my father. And I still to this day don't really understand why that was. I I think had I been a little bit more in less shock and more pragmatic, I may have asked firm, more firmly to for a diagnosis of what was happening before I walked into the room because walking into the room was a massive shock. He was on multiple tubes to help him breathe. There were noises from machines that I'd never heard before. His face was swollen beyond recognition on one side. He was in a neck brace. His um, legs were restrained, legs and arms were restrained on the bed and he looked like a frail old man that had been beaten. Not a fall. Not, definitely not a fall. So how long until you're able to you walk in, you see your, your dad, who you love, in this situation, and you know, noises and just a shit scene. How long before your brain can go, okay, let's go? I can. I've got things that I want to know. I've got things to do here. Yeah, surprisingly quicker than I would have expected. Um, I burst into tears when we first walked into the room. As did my mum, and my, I think my uncle hardly spoke because he was in so much shock and you know we kind of held my dad's hand and told him he was loved and you know and then it was was pretty like a few minutes after that I started up then asking for the doctor um one of the interesting things that happened at that point was that I had an overwhelming sense of sadness that this could even happen. I couldn't stop thinking about the person that had done it and what must be wrong with their life for them to do that much harm to somebody else, which I know sounds extraordinary. And I don't, I still to this day don't know where that came from, why I had that thought, unless it was my life experiences my experience on the bus of being angry and letting that bubble over and not and, and restraining it. I don't I really don't know, but I'm grateful that I had that thought and not a thought of revenge or more pain. And and that's pretty much from that moment I've been on that mission not to perpetuate more pain in the world. Thank you for joining Sue and I today. That's part one of Sue's story. In part two of Sue's story, her strength of character, her resilience, and her capacity for forgiveness is even more on display. And I'd love you to join us for part two of Sue's story. And I can't wait to bring it to you in the next episode of the Ordinary Stories podcast. If you would like to continue the conversation, head to our Facebook page. Just search Ordinary Stories on Facebook. And we would love it if you could head to iTunes and leave a rating and or a review for the Ordinary Stories podcast there too.
Thanks for listening to The Ordinary Story. <laughs> now I'm giggling. Um, thank you for listening. There's a couple of ways that you can be, that you can be part of what we're creating. Um, on iTunes, you can, you can, or you can rate the show on iTunes. Or you can rate the show on iTunes. <laughs> and review. Rate and review the, and leave a review. We'd love to hear your feedback. This should not be this difficult. <laughs>